I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. The great Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky never actually said this. Now, it's somewhat understandable that people would mistakenly attribute the quote to him. He did write Crime and Punishment. He also wrote The House of the Dead, a novel that's really a memoir in disguise, about the four years he spent in a Siberian prison camp where he witnessed the brutality of the guards as well as that of the fellow inmates. Nonetheless, According to many people who really would know, including professor of Russian literature Ilya Vinitsky in an article he wrote for the Los Angeles Book Review, Dostoevsky is not the source for that quote about judging a civilization based on the way it treats its prisoners. Nor, probably, is anybody else that you might have seen online being credited as the originator of the quote. In my own decidedly non-scholarly, non-professorial very amateur research, I was not able to find a proper source, a proper famous source at least, for the quote either. I read Nelson Mandela make reference to it in his autobiography Long Walk to Freedom, but there he does not try to source the quote either. He mentions it as though it's an old proverb that's been around since ancient times, and maybe in some other form it has been. It is called a long-accepted truism in the International Handbook of the Ombudsman, written in 1983, no doubt a very thrilling read. And in 1917, in the OE Library Critic, you get the following. You can judge the civilization of a nation by the way it deals with its prisoners of war. That piece, written in the midst of World War I, goes on to specifically disparage the civility of any nation that is engaging in any kind of barbarity regarding its captives, its citizen captives or its soldiers, one way or the other. Here we can see how this quote can be deployed in two different ways, both as a self-reflection for a society that needs to reform its prison systems, and we can see how it can be used to point a finger at the enemy and say, look at how much worse they are than we are. They are relics from a dark age of heathens and Philistines, and we are justified in eradicating them. And history gives us plenty of examples to pick and choose from if we want to justify this line of thinking. The Confederacy, on top of that thing where they held a multitude of people captive for the purpose of forced labor, also had the notorious prisoner of war camp Andersonville. Inside Andersonville, due to deplorable conditions that led to starvation and disease, men were reduced to skeletal frames of their former healthy selves, even the survivors. And images of those survivors would mirror the images of people coming out of the concentration camps in Germany after the Holocaust. Forty years before the Holocaust, the term concentration camp came into existence during the Second Boer War when the British used such camps mostly to house civilian South African refugees. 
Unsurprisingly, the horrible conditions in those camps led to starvation, disease, and death. There are many more wartime examples that I could share here, but moving away from that does not necessarily guarantee, of course, that we are going to get away from horrific conditions of a prison system. Here in America, we had the convict leasing era, which was essentially a way to prolong slavery even after the Civil War. Across the Atlantic, and then right back again, you have the French penal colony known as Devil's Island, which, at its worst, boasted a mortality rate allegedly of 75% of its convicts. Not to be outdone, the Soviet Union had their own horrible prison island, Nazino Island, which came to be known later as Cannibal Island, and I'm sure you can understand now why it is considered so notorious and awful. And despite this, somehow, at least here in the United States, neither of those managed to be the most notorious island prison of all time. That distinction, of course, belongs to Alcatraz, which, to be fair, wasn't exactly a pleasant place, although it probably was a little less unpleasant, let's say, than the prisons that ended up being nicknamed after the devil and cannibalism, respectively. These places and others have become synonymous with something terrifying and brutal. And that's not inappropriate, or even in conflict with what prisons are designed to do. In addition to, at least ostensibly, protecting us law-abiding citizens from convicted, captured criminals, although many criminals who are convicted and captured are not necessarily violent offenders, and therefore we don't necessarily need the protection, but nevertheless, in addition to serving that purpose, prisons serve the purpose of punishment. And some form of punishment as a consequence for our poor behavior is something that most, if not all of us, have been trained to at least be wary of and possibly outright fear since childhood. Imprisonment as a form of punishment is meant to act as a deterrent against potential future criminal behavior, not just for the persons directly incarcerated, but for everyone else in society as well who might be contemplating committing a crime. Many of us, of course, and surely everybody listening to this now, do not need the threat of imprisonment, the intimidation factor of that consequence of our actions, to deter us from doing something illegal or immoral or harmful to our fellow man. Nevertheless, even those of us who are disinclined to ever commit a crime might still not be completely immune to a sense of foreboding or intimidation at the thought of being incarcerated. And obviously, fear is not something that you exclusively feel for yourself. You can be afraid on behalf of others. Whether it's a family member or friend you might know and care about who is more at risk for ending up behind bars one day, or even just a stranger whose story you've encountered, particularly if they are a victim of a miscarriage of justice. There is another famous quote in regard to the severity of incarceration, and that is that it is better to let ten persons escape than one innocent suffer. And we can actually reliably source that statement it came from English jurist William Blackstone and is known as Blackstone's Ratio. Even before Blackstone published his statement in the 1760s, other prominent figures in the world of law and order had also expressed something similar. And again, it highlights the gravity of the punishment phase of maintaining law and order and recognizes the horror someone might face and endure if they were to be locked up for doing nothing wrong. And then there are other ways of finding yourself potentially locked up, that have nothing to do with a malfunctioning or malicious legal system. You could be abducted and held against your will at a remote location, or you could be held prisoner in your own home by someone you love or 
at least used to love and trusted at some point, and who you had every reason to believe loved you. In the world of fiction, this sort of thing has been explored within and without the horror genre in such recent works as The Room and Berlin Syndrome and even the comedy series The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And then, going back farther, you can find a classic, infamous example in V.C. Andrews' Flowers in the Attic. In real life, there are too many examples to even begin to list, and many of them too horrible to really contemplate, at least on a more frivolous kind of podcast like this tends to be. One that really stands out to me, though, that I can't help but to mention here is the Ordeal of Blanche Monnier, a French socialite who quote-unquote disappeared in 1874, only to turn up 25 years later. Her mother had kept her locked in a dark, unlit room in deplorable, unsanitary conditions for, again, a quarter of a century, all because Blanche wanted to marry down from her station and her aristocratic mother decided she'd rather become a monster and have her daughter rot away inside a makeshift cell than let her daughter defy her. Moving away from that, but remaining in the realm of imprisonment unrelated to any legal system, there is accidental confinement. This could potentially happen either as a result of your own mistakes or things that are well beyond your control. In April of 2008, a man named Nicholas White ended up trapped in a broken elevator in New York for 41 hours. Now that's less than two days, hardly any time at all compared to the weeks, months, and years of imprisonment that other people have faced, but you go ahead and try and spend that amount of time in a space the size of an elevator without food or water and any other outside contact and see how well you'd hold up. And then think about doing that without actually knowing how long you're going to be stuck in that box. You might break sooner than you think. And in the world of fiction, we have an example of someone who did not need to wait two days in order for them to start going a little bit mad when they found themselves trapped in an elevator. Now, in their defense, they did get considerable help getting pushed over the edge by the intrusion of others. In 1964, Olivia de Havilland, most famously the star of Gone with the Wind, kicked off a late career run as a horror and thriller queen by portraying the lady in a cage. I am determined to, at some point, devote an entire episode to the subgenre of horror known either as Psycho Bitty or Grand Dame Guignol, depending on how you want to term that, in which middle-aged or older actresses of the 1960s were prominently featured in horror or thriller films in the wake of the success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I think I can make that work within a topic of a fear of older, scary women, which dates back at least to the fear of uh, women accused of witchcraft, which obviously carries a lot of history behind it. Anyway, I'll save that for a future date. But 1964's Lady in a Cage falls squarely within that subgenre. It tells the story of a well-to-do woman who suffered a broken hip relatively recently and thus had an elevator installed in her mansion. As you can probably surmise from the title of the film as well as the topic of this episode, she ends up getting stuck in that elevator which has bars in front of it, very much like a prison, very much like a cage. This takes place on the 4th of July, just after her son has left for an extended holiday, and the combination of the heat and her isolation pushes her toward the end of her wits within mere hours of her confinement. When she 
presses the emergency alarm, nobody responds to it. It's ineffective. When she makes a game attempt to answer her ringing phone by throwing whatever she can at it, she is unsuccessful. And then someone does show up. Someone does hear the alarm. But it's not someone who intends to help her. And it's not even the worst person who she's going to encounter that day. And this is one of the scary things about being imprisoned. Not only have you had your freedoms restricted, but you end up losing control over who you have to interact with. At the beginning of her ordeal, Mrs. Hilliard, Olivia de Havilland's character, only has to contend with isolation, and that's bad enough. Later, though, she has to contend with other people, which John Paul Sartre told us can be hell in a different story about confinement. Now, the politics of this, in terms of who Miss Hilliard interacts with, who her tormentors end up being, and what she has to say about them, was commented on and examined by critics and observers during the film's initial release, and has since been assessed and evaluated by modern critics as well. And there are some obvious conclusions to draw, but I think it's a bit of a shallow reading if you just take certain things at face value. Yes, Mrs. Hilliard castigates those who harass and threaten her, eventually led by James Kahn's notably violent thug, as irredeemable products of the welfare state, at least in her estimation. No account freeloaders and hoodlums who just refuse to earn an honest living. But what is or isn't an honest living? Earlier in the film, it is established that Mrs. Hilliard built some of her wealth, at least partially, by being a war profiteer and she openly contemplates getting back into the war profiteering business. As she listens to a news story about the Cold War, she tells her son that maybe it's a good time to get back into buying stocks in armaments. Now, that obviously isn't literally criminal, but especially in light of the age of this character and the time frame that the story takes place in, we're talking about someone who surely must have known men who died and or were maimed or otherwise permanently damaged in World War II. So she can't even try to plead ignorance to the suffering wrought by warfare. And yet this is how she chose to accumulate her wealth. And now with the threat of a nuclear exchange hovering over the entire globe, she's thinking about doing it again. Yes, she says maybe she ought not to, but the way she says it, it sounds like she's thinking about getting an extra dessert at a restaurant, wondering if maybe she'll regret it a little bit later, but if it's still worth it to indulge herself right now. In short, she's not exactly an uber-wholesome Mrs. Cleaver or Carol Brady type. Despite unquestionably being the victim in the film, I don't think she's also supposed to be the absolute moral authority. Indeed, at a critical moment late in the film, after she manages to grievously wound one of her attackers, she says the following, He who unleashes the terror reaps the terror, which sounds fittingly righteous, a more dramatic way of saying what goes around comes around, but you can't forget that by then she has reaped considerable terror of her own. What terror had she previously unleashed in order for it to be revisited upon her now? Guilt and innocence are fittingly muddied, at least a bit, I think, in this film about someone being trapped behind bars. But ultimately, the true villains of the film are the trio of violent youths led by James Caan's sadistic hoodlum. They are frighteningly heartless and seem to enjoy the pain and terror they inflict upon others, starting with the petty criminals who preceded them into Mrs. Hilliard's house. However, they're a little bit short of total nihilism. I have read some reviews that compared them to the villains of uh, The Strangers or Funny Games, but unlike those infamous fictional home invaders, they are not solely interested in torment and eventual murder. 
Their primary motivator is simple greed. Same as the other criminals who unknowingly led them into Mrs. Hilliard's house. What separates Khan's bunch from the others, of course, is their capacity for cruelty. Which again ties into the fact that what can make an imprisonment scenario scary is not just the fact that you're locked up or the conditions in which you are locked up, but who you're locked up with. Many modern tales of imprisonment focus less on inhumane surroundings and more on inhumane human beings. Adding on to that is the concern that in order to survive around such violent people who you are trapped with, you have to become as violent and brutal as they are. After fighting back and viciously assaulting one of her tormentors, Mrs. Hilliard ends the movie by declaring herself a monster. And I think all of us, or at least most of us, have heard of some real-world story in which someone went to prison for a relatively innocuous crime and emerged later a hardened, perhaps even monstrous, new version of themselves. And another story that explores this theme in a more literal sense comes from a medium that I have not yet had an opportunity to cover in this podcast, but I'm excited to do so now. I've never considered myself a quote-unquote gamer, mostly because I'm not actually all that good at video games. But I do enjoy playing them from time to time, and I do think that a well-executed horror game provides a unique experience that is hard to come by with any other medium that uh, delves into the genre. Just like watching a horror movie on a large screen in a darkened theater is its own unique experience, or curling up with a book under a lamp in your bed is a distinct experience, and just like listening to a horror audiobook or podcast while you're maybe driving alone down a long road at night with few or maybe no other cars nearby, that can be a chill unto itself that you can't really replicate with any other way of processing the same story. So it goes for playing an effectively frightening and ambitious horror video game. The one that fits with the subject matter of this podcast came out in 2004. And it's not Silent Hill 4, The Room, although that game does obviously have an element of confinement to it, and I did enjoy it when I played it. But this game actually takes place in a traditional prison, on a prison island, and it concerns a man who may or may not be unjustly imprisoned and who may or may not have to fully surrender to the beast inside him in order to survive. The Suffering came out at a time when, looking back, it certainly seems like there was a more significant number of, frankly, immature games being released with the M for Mature rating. Now, before you go thinking that I'm some kind of Jack Thompson-style quasi-moralist, I am about to start singing the plaudits of a game, The Suffering, that features no shortage of unflinching violence and at least multiple allusions to sex. That said, come on, 2004 was the same year as The Guy Game, an infamous, poorly conceived attempt to shoehorn Girls Gone Wild-style softcore pornography into a trivia game. A couple years prior to that, you had... BMX Triple X, and in between those two, you had Manhunt, which, on the violent side of the scale, also is a story about a man who gets trapped in a situation that he cannot escape and has to uh, brutally assault other people or other things in order to get out, but there isn't anywhere near the depth of lore and story and world building in Manhunt as there is in The Suffering. 
Whereas a game like Manhunt is entirely about killing and gore at the end of the day, the suffering, in the same vein as Silent Hill or even Resident Evil or Mortal Kombat and several others for that matter, has more to offer in addition to the blood and guts. That's not to say it's particularly sophisticated fare. The lead character is named Torque. The island where the prison is located is called Carnate Island. The prison itself is called Abbott, and I'm sure you can see how easy it is to turn Abbott into Abattoir and guess the tone of the game from there. So it certainly isn't subtle, but as I've mentioned before and will no doubt mention time and time again, I tend to think subtlety is a bit overrated. Also, I don't think of this as any kind of guilty pleasure. I flat out like this game and like this story. More accurately, I like this game because I like its story. Gameplay-wise, I'm probably not the person to judge that. Again, I'm not actually very good at gaming. Storyline-wise, though, I think the suffering would have made for a hell of a paperback back in the 80s or 70s, or today for that matter, but especially from that golden age of paperbacks, I think it would have stood out as at least a step above some of its schlocky, fun-but-frivolous contemporaries. It's a game where even its most basic introductory enemies and monsters are meaningful. They are representative of something, whether it's something within the prison system at large or something specific to the world created for the game, and I find that truly interesting. There is, for instance, a monster that is the embodiment or incarnation, hence carnate, wink wink, of a firing squad that would have existed on the island during its history as a POW camp in World War II. Another creature is the supernatural manifestation of all the prisoners who've died by lethal injection, so on and so forth, and these are just the grunts. These aren't the bosses and primary villains of the game. In fact, the game's biggest villain is the lead character, Torque himself, who, depending on how the player plays the game, turns out to either be a familicidal madman or a victim of tragic circumstances in a miscarriage of justice. Many games that employ such a system are so disinterested in even the slightest nuance that it renders the entire exercise a bit uninteresting. I think the suffering's setting makes it a little less susceptible to this, however. On top of the preternatural perils at play, there are your fellow inmates and the guards. Who can you trust among them? On one hand, you are very much all in this together, trying to make it out, and cooperation can be key. On the other hand, it might turn into a free-for-all, every individual for himself. Within a prison, I imagine, there is an ever-present wariness that you are living within a microcosm of full societal collapse that can occur at any moment. Even the alliances and factions formed in prisons are reflective of the type of alliances and factions formed in the wake of a disaster in a story set in the post-apocalypse. It wouldn't be unnatural for anyone to wonder what they might do if they lived in a world where civilization had fallen apart. Well, prison, as a punishment at its best, is the attempted imposition of civilization upon those who have, in one way or another, violated the rules of that civilization and are being primed, if they are to ever be released, to go back into the world and never break the rules ever again. That's the ideal, at least. The reality is another animal. In the suffering, though, the player has a chance to steer the character into becoming that ideal, the person who emerges from the extreme carnage of his situation and is now better than who he was before his incarceration. 
because even the innocent version of Torque was a man prone to violence and nursing considerable hatred, and that hatred is what he has to do battle with in a very literal sense at the end of the game, and if he can overcome that dark side, you get the positive, the happy ending, that I think is the most thematically compelling and fitting ending for the story. If it turns out that he's just been an unrepentant killer all along and is embracing his dark side, there's not really much of an arc there. You also lose any sense of fear, at least from the character's perspective. If his dark side is the most powerful enemy in the story, and he's already fully embraced it by killing his entire family, the worst possible thing he can do, what does he have to be afraid of? And it's not as if the pure evil version of Torque is presented as psychologically intriguing in any way, or harboring any true duality. He's just a guy who starts off as a dormantly superpowered killer and ends with his superpowers activated. The other version of Torque is made to confront something within himself because of the prison setting. Well, that and the fact that demonic forces have erupted and turned the island into hell on earth, but even absent that, he still would have had to come to grips with who he was and what he was capable of doing. There are many things you might find frightening about the idea of being imprisoned. Depending on how long you'll be imprisoned, there is the loss of time, something you can never get back. Depending on where you're being locked up, there are the conditions that you'll be stuck in, that you'll be living in for the duration. There's the possibility that you could get sick, that you won't have enough to eat, that you'll end up a casualty of your surroundings. There's whoever it is that has you locked up. You are subject to this person's whims. If it's a kidnapper or even a warden, they might make you experience discomfort or agony, and they may do so because they're attempting to discipline you, rightly or wrongly, or just to exert their power. And then, there are the people you are locked up with, your fellow prisoners. They may have brought certain tendencies or prejudices that will make them a threat to you into the prison with them, or they may have developed these things over the course of their confinement. And the fact that in order to adapt to your environment while you are locked down, you might pick up negative characteristics of your own that did not exist beforehand and that might stick with you is yet one more thing that could frighten any one of us about the prospect of imprisonment. But as I said in episode one, fear is not necessarily always a bad thing. A fear of any of these aspects of official imprisonment, incarceration, might be all that keeps one person from doing something injurious to another person. And in that case, I'm sure the person who is kept safe is appreciative of that fear. And hopefully, on some level, even the person who refrains from doing something bad appreciates it as well. On the other hand, overcoming that fear might be essential to summoning the courage to do something good if you're working within a corrupt or imbalanced system. Either way, the idea of being locked away and lost to loved ones for however long is intrinsically frightening to us. And maybe that's why the unsourced quote from the beginning of this episode persists. To some, a sufficiently civil society will at least try to minimize the worst characteristics of a necessarily employed fear. Thank you for listening to episode four of the Healthy Fears podcast. As always, if you enjoyed what you heard, feel free to subscribe and share with a friend. Episode 5 will arrive in two weeks and will be the first of a two-part installment on Outsiders. 
In the meantime, I invite you to visit johnnycompton.com where you can view my short story publication credits and read anything that has crossed my mind that I felt like sharing on the site, mostly pertaining to horror. One way or another, until the next episode, well, I would say keep yourself out of the kind of trouble that could land you in a cell, but to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, you could keep the law and yet be worthless, or break the law and yet be fine. So instead, I'll say keep in mind whatever it is that you're doing or not doing, and I trust that you'll land on the fine side of the line, as opposed to the worthless. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.